Um, hope that you'll, ladies especially, consider that um, Bible study and also pick up a copy of the devotional out there. And we're going to do something uh, else as a church to kind of nourish our souls together. And that is we're going to memorize some scriptures together this year. So starting next Sunday, you'll have a little card in your bulletin. And uh, beginning each Sunday, uh, we'll stand up before the sermon and uh, we'll throw this verse on the screen and we'll say it together and then we'll take it down off the screen and see if we can memorize a, a new one each month. And <clears throat> there'll be stacks of uh, cards at the info center if you want to get some for every person in your family, extra ones, and uh, see if we can. They're all gospel-rooted verses, and so hopefully by the end of the year, um, all of us will have a, just a, a, a richer Bible-shaped um, idea about the good news of Jesus Christ, and uh, it'll be fun to, to do as well. We're going to take a break uh, for the five Sundays in January uh, from the Doctor's Cure, our study through the book of Luke, uh, although not really a break because each of these five uh, messages, uh, the main passage or one of the main passages for each sermon does come out, out of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so today we're in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, if you want to find that. Uh, this series is just called Identifiable. Each Sunday we're going to talk about a different kind of love that identifies uh, us as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, hopefully, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're not a Christian, hopefully you'll be able to um, ponder these things in the next weeks and say, wow, that would be what marks a believer. And a number of things could be true, said of that. Think about that those kinds of things mark me at all. The people that I know that are Christians, that mark them. And it'll be especially of interest for you today because we're going to talk about you and folks like you and our love for you, our love for people that don't know Jesus Christ. Um, today, our um, title of our message is Unashamed. And so let me pray for us, and then we're going to read a single verse in Luke. Father, whether we're sleepy or not, my prayer is always that the Holy Spirit would minister to us during these times. Um, sometimes when I prepare a message, I just ponder at the impossibility of the things that I think about, the things that I string together, actually making a difference in anybody's life. And I, I, I realize that Apart from you, there is none of that. And so I pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning, and that he would use the word to do it. And I pray against the enemy who hates you and hates me and hates uh, those here who are children of yours and, and hates the gospel that has made us one. And even though they might not realize it, even people here who are not Christians, uh, he hates them as well. And he hates the idea of losing one of them. And so this morning I pray that you would enlarge our capacity for them and for you uh, so that we might be effective for your kingdom, helpful for those in need. And that uh, we'd not just be here on this planet to collect trinkets. Not just be here to uh, kind of shape a conventional life. Other people do this, so I want to do this. Other people do this, so I want to do this. But that we would be here, as Paul says, as slaves of Jesus Christ. So that no matter what he calls us to do, we're ready to say yes. Amen. <clears throat> Luke chapter 9, verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That's it. That's our text this morning, just one verse. I want to read it again. I'd like you to read it with me out loud. Ready? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory 
and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Don't let that verse run away from you. Don't dodge its sting and its impact. Don't uh, change it from being a taser to a Nerf gun. Don't pretend that what Jesus said he didn't really mean. That Jesus said, if, if you're going to be ashamed of me here on planet Earth now, when I come back, my second coming, and you've been ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you as well. Now, the context here, on the one hand, obviously Jesus is not trying to make anybody feel comfortable, but on the other hand, he's not trying to make anybody feel bad. He's talking to a motley crew of people. He's talking to the, the crowd who were contemplating signing on board, who were considering following Jesus, becoming a disciple of his. And he warned them. You just have to understand what that means. You have to decide whether or not you are all in or just a little in. If you're all in, you're putting your life on the line for me. Anybody wants to keep his life, he's going to lose it. But anybody who's willing to lose his life for my sake will, will keep it. If you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself, give up your self-centeredness, and take up your cross and follow me. Hence, if anybody is ashamed of me today, I will be ashamed of them one day. Don't dodge it. We're talking about evangelism this morning. A lot of different phrases and words we use for that. Evangelism comes right from the Greek word in the, for the gospel, euangelion. It's just kind of a transliteration. Uh, we talk about witnessing, which speaks of someone going into a courtroom and telling what they saw. And so you and I go into, into the world and we tell people about what we've experienced with Jesus Christ, what we know about Jesus Christ. Um, sharing the gospel. I'm going to use these kinds of things interchangeably today. And my guess is that many of us who are Christians, when it comes to this discussion about talking with other people about Jesus, it's one of those things where we go, oh, no, not again. I hate when we talk about this because I feel so wretched and I feel so guilty because I don't share Jesus every time I should. And there have been just chances this week that I had an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus and I blew it. And I usually tell the church when I speak on evangelism, if you leave this morning feeling guilty, I have utterly failed. I'm convinced that Satan uses guilt far more frequently than God does. Because typically all guilt does is make us feel bad. It doesn't make us change. And so I don't want you feeling guilty this morning. We have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ showering us. I'll talk at the end about the whole business of failure because I'm assuming most of us know failure when it comes to evangelism. But I do want us to think about what we are willing to lose for Jesus' sake when it comes to evangelism. And that whole shame factor. We want to talk about the kinds of things that, reasons that we can get ashamed about Jesus rather than talking to them about the good news. Now, when Jesus, <clears throat> when Jesus called uh, Peter and Andrew, these brothers were down the Sea of Galilee and if you're a Christian at any length of time, you probably know that Jesus picked a couple of fishermen to be part of his premier group of disciples, followers. And Simon and Andrew were two of those. And Jesus comes up to them by the Sea of Galilee. They're throwing nets out in the water, fishing. That's what they did for a living. And Jesus says, come follow me, and I will make, I'll teach you how to fish for people. I'll teach you how to fish for people. 
Now, one of the things, how many of you are fisher people, fishermen, fisherwomen? I mean, you really like to fish. I didn't even see you. Did you get it up? Okay. Uh, Brandon likes to fish. Uh, you people who are, are, are into fishing are really into fishing. I've learned that. At least some of you are. In fact, I now have the attention of some of you, and I didn't have it a minute ago. There was a, a song Brad Paisley came out with uh, about 14 years ago, a country song, called uh, I'm Gonna Miss Her. Anybody remember that song? <laughs> I'm, I'm not into country music uh, very much, but there's just some fun songs there. And it's a story about a husband and wife, and he's a fisherman, and he, he's a really dedicated fisherman. And uh, his wife comes up to him one day. The video is really kind of hilarious. She comes up to him one day, and she's talking to him sweetly. You don't hear the conversation. You just see the expression on her face, and you see her lips moving. You can tell what she's saying. And she's looking forward to spending the day with her husband, you know, and I guess it's a Saturday. And, and he says, well, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going fishing. And she kind of loses it and says, fine. She's at the end of her uh, fishing line. She says, if you come back, if you go out fishing today and you come back, I am not going to be here. And you see him think for a minute, and then he's with his band out in the pier, and then he just dives in. I'm going to miss her. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not really that funny <laughs> in the big scheme of things. But hey, it's just a song. But I thought it was kind of an interesting uh, thought as I'm thinking about fishing for people. The reality is that if we're going to fish for people, there are some things that we're going to need to be willing to give up. Some things. Now, those of you who do go fishing, my guess is that when you go fishing, you're not afraid. Hey, you, nobody, nobody stays awake the night before you're leaving for a mountain stream up in northern PA in Sullivan County and you're going to go trout fishing. Nobody stays awake because you're worrying about what might happen the next day when you go fishing. Some sort of bad thing, that there's some sort of dangers along the stream. I, you know, if you're fishing in Alaska in grizzly territory and you're fishing for salmon... Yeah, that, that might be an exception. But in general, if you're staying awake before a fishing trip, it's because you're so excited you can't wait to get out there and go fishing. Because the, the fish really pose no threat to you. There's no danger. And fishing for trout and bass is, is quite different than fishing for people in that our purposes are different. And if you're not a Christian, this is important for you to know. When they go down to the Susquehanna, their, their goal is to, uh, it is to destroy, I, I mean, got to say that. You pull the fish up out of the water, and now because they're out of the water, the fish can't breathe, and so they're going to expire, and then you're going to take them home and eat them. So you destroy and devour if you're going fish, fishing for fish. But when you go fishing for people, your goal is entirely different. You're fishing to deliver. You have the people's best interest at heart. They may not feel that, especially initially. But if you're not a Christian, you need to know that. This is what drives us. This is our desire, purpose, our intent. Now, because fish are quite different than people, there, is a there are dangers, there are threats when we go out and start talking to people about the Savior. How they react to us is there are some things at stake, some things that we're not sure we're willing to risk, some things that we're willing to give up. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But there is a call. If you know Christ, if you've been born again, there is a call on your life, just like there was a call on Simon and Andrew's lives, to fish for people. That was not simply a restricted call that Jesus gave to a couple high-profile people and everybody else can sit and watch. I am not the evangelist of Keystone Church. We are the evangelists of Keystone Church. The call to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, it rests on your shoulders as well as mine. 
So the call, the call to be fishermen, fisherwomen. Now, one of the things that I've heard of the years, and you may have said it as well, is that, that the main thing that will drive us to tell people about Jesus is if we get a passion for lost people, or we talk about a love for lost people. And if we love lost people, we're going to tell them about Jesus. I don't think that's sustainable. The, the, the reality is most of us grasp that if people do not come to Jesus Christ in their life, that they are facing a Christless eternity complete with all the uh, unrelenting torment of an eternal hell. We get that. And yet the bottom line is most of us would admit that we have had golden opportunities to tell people about Jesus. And even though we know that if they don't come to Christ, they're lost and facing that eternity, we still don't tell them. I'm not convinced that just the love for lost people is sustainable in that it's going to continually compel me there. I think most of us would say we go through seasons like this where sometimes we're really focused on and thoughtful about the, the lost condition of these people and other times we're just not. I think there's a, an, another reason that we want to be careful to say our compelling motivation needs to be loving lost people. I think the compelling motivation needs to be worshiping Jesus Christ. Not just loving Jesus Christ, but worshiping him. And I'll give you some examples why that is. Um, I've referred to this book before. Rob Bell wrote a book about five, six years ago now called Love Wins, in which he, in a kind of roundabout way with classic Bell skill, um, basically argued that all people are going to eventually end up in heaven. So there's this idea of an eternal place of judgment for lost people uh, goes away. Now, if you know anything about Rob Bell, you know that this was, this was a man, Rob was a megachurch pastor out in Michigan and um, <clears throat> no longer there. Uh, when he wrote this, uh, obviously it raised a lot of concern in the evangelical church because it's not what scripture teaches, uh, I don't believe. And, um, but he was pretty convinced of it and convincing. I think there were people that were certainly convinced by it. If you know Rob Bell, you know this is true about him. Rob loves lost people. In fact, my guess is that Rob had far more non-Christian friends than I ever will. It's one of the tragedies about Christi Christian faith. Statistically, they tell us about three years into our faith. In other words, you come to faith in Jesus Christ that within about three years, we've purged our network of unbelievers, which is really kind of a problem. Rob loved lost people, hung out with lost people a lot. In fact, my suspicion is that he loved lost people so much that he wanted to sketch a more acceptable future for them. In his, the preface of his book, he writes, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. Now, let me stop there before I read his conclusion and say, Everything that that line says, the Bible says, with the possible exception of few. Now, the word, when I hear few Christians, just a few Christians are going to go to heaven, that sounds like, to me, 30 or 40. <laughs> and there are over 2 billion people in the world that call themselves Christians. Now, we all know that in any faith, there are frauds, there are imitate, imitators. And so let's just say there are only a billion Christians in the world, true Christians in the world. Even if they are, that's one-seventh of the world's population. So, but that's quibbling. He goes on to say, this is misguided, meaning that just Christians are going to go to heaven. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread 
of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. And I, I read that and I'm like, I, Rob, is it possible that your love for lost people eclipsed your worship for Christ? Another example. Um, a woman, maybe some of you ladies know, uh, named Jen Hatmaker, blogger, well-known evangelical speaker, pastor's wife out of Texas. In late October, publicly announced that she is now in favor of uh, gay marriage, um, described um, monogamous gay relationships as holy before God. Now, Jen was widely regarded to be, she's going to be the woman who replaces Beth Moore. She's the next Beth Moore. And uh, I, I don't know much at all about Jen. I've been reading up on her the last couple of months. But I would, I would suggest this, that she, like Rob, loves lost people a lot. And you can kind of imagine she's deeply rooted in the evangelical Christian tribe in the U.S., got a lot of flack for her position. And she wrote on her blog to Christians this warning. She says, watch out. Our LGBT friends are watching. Now, this elicited a public response, an open letter to Jen from a woman named Rosario Butterfield. If you know um, that name, Rosario came to faith in Christ in 1999. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University teaching in the English Lit Department and in women's studies. She was a, a lesbian living with another woman at the time. And um, there was a local pastor and his wife who reached out to her and befriended her. And uh, over a period of about three years, um, she eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ. And she's been very honest and, and forthright about her challenges in, in the wake of her conversion, the temptations and all of that. But she wrote this letter to Jen and she said, you said that we need to be careful because our LGBT, uh, LGBT friends are watching meaning watching what we, we are thinking about, what we're saying regarding gay marriage. And Rosario said, that's true, they are watching, which is why we need to be all the more clear for their sake on what God says. She said, if I would have read this back when I was wrestling with the strength of the lesbian um, temptation she said this would have come to me as a panacea for my soul convincing me that I could have everything I could have Jesus and my sin and she said when I read your blog she said there was a cold trickle of sweat that crept down my spine that terrified me she said had, I, had that time been now and I read this she said you would have hung a millstone around my neck. And if you know what she's referring to, you know Jesus said, if someone causes someone else to sin, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around his or her neck and for them to be dropped into the sea than to endanger someone else with that temptation. You see, I suspect that like Rob, for his non-Christian friends, the Jen for her non-Christian friends, that she is trying to sketch a kind of sexual expression that her unbelieving friends will find more acceptable. Rosario went on in this letter to convey an experience she had a number of years ago when she was speaking in a church. An older woman came up to her. She turned out she was 75 years old. After the days, I guess there were a number of seminars through the day. And she pulled her aside in a very low voice. She said, I've been married to another woman for 50 years. We have children. We have grandchildren. And then she said this, I have heard the gospel, and I understand that I may lose everything, 
Why didn't anyone tell me this before? Why did people I love not tell me that I would one day have to choose like this? Are you following what I'm saying? Our love for lost people can't actually be a, a deterrent to our worship of Jesus Christ. If we are going to bank on our evangelism, running on the strength of our love for lost people. You see, we fish ultimately not even for lost people's sake. We fish for Jesus' sake. Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. And I find it interesting. I think sometimes when we look back at the early church, we can, the primitive church, we think uh, along the lines that they had it all together and they were just bold witnesses. They're going, you know, they're dying in the arenas and they're being, uh, having their lands uh, taken from them because they're Christians. And, and these people were all in and they never wrestled with timidity. And I think Paul used that word uh, ashamed on purpose. I think even the apostle Paul wrestled with, do I really want to go for broke here or don't I? And so he declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel because people need to hear about a Jesus who gave his life for them. And so I want to ask you and me, because my guess is that most of the Christians here have, we've all experienced this where we have gone silent. Golden opportunity. And in hindsight, maybe think more along the lines of, I, oh, I just blew it, I wasn't paying attention, when maybe deep down there's these kinds of reservations. I don't want people to think about me this way, this way, or this way. And so let's feel Jesus' statement back in Luke 9. Are you going to be ashamed of me, or aren't you? Are you Christian? Are you pastor? Are you willing to risk loss of friendship? Are you willing to risk the loss of respect? Are you willing to lose status among your peers? And I'm especially talking to you young people where peer strength is so powerful. Are you willing to risk the kinds of stories that will be spread around school if you speak to someone about faith? Are you willing to risk having strangers think you're strange? I've talked to uh, people on airplanes probably three times about Jesus. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how pathetic I am that these people whom I've never seen before and I'll never see again, that what they think of me would matter. But it always does. That I'd be willing to be thought uneducated and unsophisticated. And brothers and sisters, this is going to increasingly be the issue in America. You're going to be thought as backwards. People who are holding on to their guns and their religion. I don't care about guns, but I care about faith. And increasingly, your neighbors and the people you go to school with and the people that you work with and even the people that you're related to are going to think that if you love Jesus Christ and you believe in a God that can't be seen and you believe in a heaven that you have no evidence of and you believe in a sinful nature that's not true of everybody. There are these good people around me. How can you say everyone is sinful to the core? You're going to be thought of as uneducated, no matter how many degrees you have. You're going to be thought of as unsophisticated. Are you willing to stand with Jesus at that cost? 
And again, it's not an all or nothing. All of us are going to blow it in this area. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm just saying about our prior commitments before we ever get to that point. I was reading this week. I have a little devotional guide from um, OMF, Mission Organization. And they were talking about uh, an imam who was a leader of a mosque, Islamic mosque, an imam in southern Sumatra, which is one of the largest of the uh, Indonesian islands. Uh, Jesus came to him in a vision on three separate occasions. And if you don't know this, um, people have been coming, Muslims have been coming to faith in Christ by the thousands for the last 15, 20 years in some very unexpected parts of the world simply through visions and dreams of Christ showing up. And you say, well, how do they know it's Jesus? The Quran speaks about Jesus, the Islamic holy book speaks about Jesus many times. Some of the things it says are true, some, some aren't. But they revere him as a great prophet. And after three visits, this imam became convinced that Jesus was indeed the son of God. He was who he said he was. <laughs> and now what do you do? So he's, he's not showing up at the mosque to preach. He's not showing up at the mosque to lead prayers and, and five times a day if you're Muslim. He doesn't, he doesn't come. And apparently he didn't send word about what was happening, but suspicion starts to spread in the community, and they start threatening him and his family. And he's like, I'm all in publicly baptized, which in a lot of parts of the world, that's, that's where the trouble really begins. When you are publicly baptized, you officially come out and all the opposition, whether it be from your family or from your community, from your boss, from the leaders of the nation. He said, I, I, don't, I am willing to risk whatever it takes. becomes involved in translation of the New Testament for his people group. I look at that, I'm like, wow, he's willing to do that. And how many times have I cringed, whether on an airplane or wherever, to say, ooh, am I willing to risk what these people are going to think about me or say about me and tell them about Jesus? Fisherman's Guide. First of all, what's our goal? If we're going to fish for people, what's our goal? Our goal is to see people turn from sin to Christ. Um, we're the vehicle, we're the tool, but it, ultimately it's the work of God, right? And so, I don't know about you, that gives me courage and encouragement. That means I can screw up royally and God can still get his work done because it ultimately doesn't depend on me. By the way, watch out. Watch out about that mindset that says, I... Man, I, I'm frantic. I have to frantically share the gospel with these people because they could die tomorrow. And then what would happen? It doesn't depend on you. God knows what he's doing. I know people who have wrestled with horrific guilt in the wake of somebody dying, and they missed an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Don't, don't do that to yourself. That makes you God. That makes you the sovereign God. If you feel like you blew it, you repent and ask God's forgiveness. I don't live with that kind of devastating guilt because that, that just, it's so easy to turn ourselves into God there. So our goal was to see people turn from sin. What's the bait? Hey, listen, it was Jesus that started this metaphor of fishing, not me. So what's the bait? The bait is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Period. Don't promise them that their marriage is going to get back together. Don't promise them that God's going to heal them. Don't promise them that their job prospects are going to improve. Don't promise them they'll get a husband or a wife. Don't promise them anything because that's not been promised. Some of that may be on God's agenda for them, but you can't promise them. What God has promised is that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's what we're promised. And that's what you can promise someone else. The bait is the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. So what are our actions? If we're going to go out fishing, what are our actions? What's the uh, boat we're going to get in and 
I don't know what else fisher people do, but anyway, what are our actions? I, I have some suggestions for you. Very not special, but I think they're helpful. One, make friends. This, again, is how many of us do not have people who don't know Jesus as friends? We purge the network and we just hang around with people that think like us. And making friends. You say, well, what if they don't come to Jesus? What? What? I mean, you don't make a friend because you're trying to do a project. These people are not projects. These are people who are made in the image of God that God loves so much that he gave Jesus for them. You should and I should make friends of them. If they don't come to Jesus, they're still my friends. Make friends. Where are the circles that you move in where you have contact with people that don't know Jesus? Work, school, neighborhood. This time of season, I think um, it's easy to, or should be easy for God to remind me, I've got a bunch of extended family members that don't know Jesus. You know, cousins, aunts, uncles, all of that. Maybe you have a lot of that too. Where, where, Where are the circles that you have where you come into contact with lost people that you could start to look about making friends with. Secondly, offering practical help to somebody uh, in need. About six, seven years ago, God just convicted me horrifically about this. I spent about a year just praying that God would open my eyes to people in need. I have a tendency to be very preoccupied. So whether I'm driving in my car, I'm at my desk, uh, I'm at home in the backyard, I'm just, I'm focused on me and the stuff I have to do and the things that I'm going to do next. And I come to realize I'm just not attentive to people's needs. And I prayed that God would change my heart about that. And he did. And, And in the process, I discovered, wow, how much I must have been missing all along. And one of the circles that he spoke to me about was my extended family. And, you know, I started to talk to people that I normally only talk to once a year and find out they're moving. I say, hey, I have a trailer. You know, let me know when you're moving. I'll come bring my trailer and we'll load things up and I'll help you. You know, a relative that's having surgery is going to be off for six weeks. And write him a check and send him, send him a check. And... Uh, These are places where I have opportunities to minister to people that not only need Jesus, but need something else. You know, that's a wonderful way just to show the love of Christ to people um, who don't know the Savior. Be willing to pray for them about a particular need in their lives. Making friends, offering practical help. Third, invite people into your home. Invite people into your home. In April, we're going to have a mission conference here uh, with Kevin King from New York City, who's uh, president of the International Project. Really excited about that day. It's going to be a Sunday morning and evening. It's a Sunday after Easter. And uh, been working on getting him since about uh, August or September. Finally got that nailed down not too long ago. But there's a video on his website that I watched it, and I just ended up at my desk in tears. A man in Minneapolis telling a story uh, in Minneapolis, there's a lot of uh, refugees that ended up getting settled there, and a lot of them from Somalia. And this man was a believer, but he just had a bad attitude about all of these refugees that were coming to their community. And apparently one day he had, uh, I think it was some kind of accident, I think it was a fender bender with a Somali. And it ended up he was being sued. And he was so angry, and he just muttered to himself, why don't you just go back where you came from? And he said, God spoke to me, convicted my heart. He said, broke my heart. And he said, I began to pray for them. And I began to pray for all of these immigrants around us. And he said, I got to the point where instead of, as I used to do, walk onto the other side of the road so I didn't have to encounter them. He said, I started walking across the road to engage them. He made a friend of this one man and they had uh, the family in one one night to their home. 
And the father said, he said, this is a very momentous night in our family's life. And the man who had invited them thought, ah, oh, it must be something special from their days in Somalia. I wonder, wonder what that's about. So he asked him, he said, why, why is today so momentous? He said, because today is the first time in 14 years that an American has invited us into their home. Do you realize how many people outside of the United States of America don't make any distinction between American people and American Christians? They think everybody in America is a Christian. And so the behavior of everyone is Christian behavior. Invite somebody into your home. Fourth, invite people to church services or special Christian events, maybe a concert or something. They, they, in surveys done with lost people, they say that 25% of lost people would be willing to come to a church service if somebody invited them. Do you think about next Sunday, I wonder who I could invite to church service. Say, well, you don't give the gospel presentation each Sunday, Pastor. That's true. Most people don't come to Jesus in a moment. It's long and drawn out. They hear the full counsel of God, and God's Holy Spirit uses something that you might not even expect to push them over the line from life or from death of the life. Fifth, play the long game. Play the long game. See, what do you mean? Think out there, not in weeks, months, but in years, and maybe even longer, in terms of hoping and praying for somebody to come to Jesus Christ. Derwin Gray is a pastor down in South Carolina, a megachurch today. Uh, Derwin used to play for the uh, Colts. He was an NFL player, five years with the Colts, one year with the Panthers until his uh, body started to give out. Um, he was not a Christian, didn't grow up in a Christian home. He went to Brigham Young University, and uh, he joins the Colts, and one of the first times uh, after their workout, he comes out of the shower, and another guy comes out of the shower, wraps a towel around his waist, grabs his Bible, and walks over to Derwin and, and says, Do you know Jesus? You hardly have anything on. And he went to some of the veterans in the team, and he says, who's that guy over there? Uh, don't mind him. That's the naked preacher. We call him the naked preacher, Steve Grant. He was a linebacker with the Colts back in the mid-'90s. Well, he didn't give up. And week in and week out, he's talking to, uh, he's talking to Derwin about Christ. And they became friends. And five years later, Darwin came to Christ. And not long after that, his wife came to Christ. And he's a powerful man of God these days because somebody took the long view, played the long game. Last suggestion is probably should be the first, and that's prayer. Praying for lost people. Even as timid as any of us are, that's something we can do in working towards someone's salvation. I, I, I think it's easy for us to forget that fundamentally, someone coming to faith in Christ is a spiritual battle. Fundamentally, it's a spiritual battle. They are not the way they are simply because they liked another faith better. They're not simply the way they are because they can't wrap their minds around the possibility of an invisible God and an invisible heaven and all that. They are the way they are because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, the enemy, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of the gospel. That means that when you cry out to God for somebody you care about, that they would come to know Christ. That's spiritual warfare. And that's a prayer that I pray a lot for people that need Jesus. That's, that's 
kind of my go-to line. God, remove the blinders from their eyes. That's where it has to start. God, remove the blinders from their eyes. I, I suspect that this is probably the, the, the greatest weakness in, for many of us, certainly for me, when it comes to evangelism. We're kind of thinking about, okay, what, what questions might they have, and do I have an answer for them? And, and then, I, I, oh, I better make sure I have an answer for this question. And, and we want to make sure that we're going in, we have a, our script laid out. And, and all of that might be messed up, and they come to know Jesus because it's a God thing. It's a spiritual work, God's grace. And so a lot of prayer. And the power of God in salvation. What is power of God? The gospel is the power of God in salvation. It's not the power of Keith. It's not the power of Kim. It's not the power of Bill. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You say, well, okay, let's just let's get real for a minute. Let's talk about the failures. I've had a lot of failures evangelistically, both from the times I've sat down with people, as well as the times I've failed to sit down with people. We need to go back to the night Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus is talking to a young man named Peter. And he says, you are going to deny me tonight. Not happening, not happening. Man, I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. I would never deny. Not only are you going to deny me, you're going to deny me three times, and you're going to do it before the rooster crows. <laughs> what are you thinking? Jesus, this is Peter. You know me. Yeah, I do. And so Jesus is taking to Caiaphas' house. Peter's out in the courtyard. They can see each other. Jesus is getting interrogated in here. Peter's warming his hand by the fire. There's servants there and other people. And they say, you talk funny. You're a Galilean, aren't you? You're one of, you're one of his, aren't you? No, no, I, no, I don't know. Who would you say, Jesus? No, I don't know him. A little while later, I'm, I'm sure I saw you. No, I don't know him. And yet the third time, and do you remember what the text says? It says, Peter swore. So in our vernacular, it might have been something like, God damn it, I don't even know him. Now, it's important that you hear it like that because of how Jesus responded to him after he rose from the dead. And you think, if I was in Jesus, if I was in Jesus' shoes, that guy's gone. And I'm going to tell him what a scumbag he was. Do you remember what happened after Peter did that? Jesus and Peter, Jesus turned and looked at him. He and Peter made eye contact. And Peter ran out of the courtyard and just wept. So Jesus risen from the dead. He and a couple of disciples are having brunch by the sea, fish, your typical brunch. And Jesus never brings up what happened. He simply says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Isn't it awesome that God does the same thing with us? You blow it, I blow it, we blow it. This great call on our lives to fish, and we blow it again and again. Jesus just comes along. Do you love me? Because that's the main thing. Do you love me? Next time you have an opportunity, I'm going to pour out grace. You're going to say what you need to say. You're going to love how you need to love because you love me. We're here on the cusp of 2017. We have 365 days. There are about 800 people that call Keystone their home. And a lot of them are kids. So let's just, let's just say 650, 600 people. If we would all take the long game, play the long game, start praying about God's love being manifested through us to lost people, that five years from now, 10 years from now, there would be 600 new believers because we took seriously God's call to fish. 
and we decided that we loved Jesus more than we loved anything else. We were willing to risk our status, we were willing to, to risk our respect, our friends, risk being humiliated, rejected. We were willing, willing to risk all of that because we're unashamed of Jesus. And the outcome might be a whole nother church of new believers. How amazing would that be, awesome it would be, and how God-glorifying it would be. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for the good news that many of us have embraced and said thank you for. But we're still here. You left us here, not just so we could collect more trinkets, gather achievements and accolades to bloat our obituaries with, You left us here to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that you sent us to fish for. Don't let us get so busy doing everything else that we don't take time to fish. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.